Welcome to Crossroads Church Podcast. We are located in Northern Colorado, and you may hear us refer to ourselves as Orange Dots of Hope. And what's so cool and exciting is that Orange Dots of Hope are not just located in Northern Colorado, but our community stretches literally around the world, and we are grateful for you. And this podcast is another way for us to make our world a little bit smaller. So it's so good to be with you. My name is Jessica, and I am your host. And Ryan is in a series called Campfire Stories. And I want to give you a little bit of an overview before I hand it off to week two. Here is the big idea of Campfire Stories. We love to hear a good story. A good story transports us through time and space. A good story can bring us to something deeper than facts or fiction, truth. A good story can calm us or even agitate us out of our complacency. When we are feeling wounded, a good story can heal us. Jesus knew that short, memorable stories carry the deepest truths from generation to generation. So, Jesus told stories. The earliest followers of Jesus picked up the habit and told short stories about Jesus that would transcend time and space. These stories of miracles, betrayal, friendship, long journeys, campfires on the sea, deaths and resurrection would eventually find their way onto paper and into our lives through the Bible. This summer, let's meet around the campfire and explore stories that can shape our spirituality and reveal the truth of God. Make sure you prioritize connecting each week, and that's what we're doing here on the podcast. After all, you never know who you will meet and what you will hear sitting around the campfire after a long week at work. So I'm going to hand it off to Ryan now, week two of Campfire Stories. Here we go. All right, good morning. How's everybody doing? I want to say thank you for coming to my anniversary party this morning. That's what you're here for. You don't know it. Today's my anniversary. Wendy and I have been married for 23 years, so that's exciting. Put up with that woman long enough. <laughs> Just kidding. She puts up with me, if you've known that. I think we put up with each other. That's how it works, right? Let's be honest. So uh, good to see everybody. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're a guest this morning, tuning in for the first time, maybe you're here in the room, maybe you're out in the atrium or outside enjoying this beautiful day here in Colorado, or maybe you're tuning in from London. I have no idea, but uh, we're glad that you're here as a guest. Thank you so much for being here. And I would love it if you'd fill out that Connect card, as much information as you feel comfortable. Just check that box new here, and uh, we just make sure you get any information you need, you would like. Uh, about our community here. It's a wonderful space, I think, but that's just my opinion on the matter. So good to have everybody here. We're in a series called Campfire Stories, where we're just exploring different stories, kind of imagining what would it be like if we were sitting around a campfire, chatting and talking, and, and maybe somebody were to say something. And so today, as we kind of launch into week two, imagine yourself sitting around a campfire, maybe roaring like this one here. 
just roaring. You know, you smoke everywhere. Has anybody else heard like when smoke gets in your eyes and you're at a campfire, you're supposed to say, I hate bunnies? Nobody's ever heard that before? Try it next time. You're sitting at a campfire, smoke blows in your face. Just, I hate bunnies, I hate bunnies, I hate bunnies. It's whatever, I don't know. It's witchcraft. It, go, it works though, whatever it is, I don't know. But uh, everybody laughs at me. I, I, I thought everybody knew that. I thought that's what you did, but I guess not. So. But imagine yourself sitting around a campfire and uh, somebody says something like this. Now, you'd have to, for this to work, you kind of all have to be faith people, right? Or the majority of you, just so you can make the one awkward person who doesn't, you know, whatever it might be. But just imagine you kind of all share kind of the same faith values. And somebody says, boy, you know what? Sometimes this faith thing, sometimes, sometimes going to church, sometimes following Jesus, sometimes being a Christian, whatever words you like to use, sometimes it's just really difficult and I want to quit. I want you to imagine that feeling, right? Somebody says it, and then you can all kind of like, if we're being honest, we would all be like, yeah, totally. Because that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about this idea of kind of suffering that comes into your life as a person of faith, uh, hardships, difficulties, and how this suffering, spoiler alert, I'm going to give you the end of the message at the beginning. So if you need to leave, feel free to leave after this one sentence, right? That somehow sacred suffering, this idea of suffering that's surrounded around faith and life in Christ, it is a pathway to intimacy. It is a pathway to intimacy with God. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever had had a season in your life, a season, not just a moment, but a season where you just felt like it was one thing after the other suffering, like just a season of intense suffering. Anybody in the room, raise your hand up nice and high. You've had that experience. If you haven't, then you can just leave. You're better than us. You don't have anything wrong with your life, I guess. I don't know. But we all, I think there's a reality that we do this, right? We have this moment. I can think of seasons in my life, uh, whether it would be work-related or whether it would be relationship-related, where it just feels like I'm paddling upstream, Right. At some point in time, you think this river's got to flow the opposite direction. Like, how am I always paddling upstream? And it's just exhausting. It's like somehow the universe got my number and it's just like totally against me. We all have that experience. And we call that suffering. I think probably the, the simplest way of thinking about suffering would be, you know, not getting your way right? I mean, anytime we don't get our way, it's a measure of suffering. Now, I think there's three types of suffering that uh, we could talk about, right? First, we could talk about what I'll call shared suffering. It's the suffering that every person in the world is inevitably going to walk through. Like, we will all walk through the suffering of grief. Not one of us will live our lives without loss. It's just, it's a shared suffering, right? We're going to get sick. We're going to experience these things that have nothing to do with your zip code. It has nothing to do with, you know, uh, how well you live your life. It has nothing to do with how much money you have. It's just, it's a shared suffering. We could talk about that. And then then there's this other kind of suffering that we'll call stupid suffering. And y'all know what I'm talking about there. Like, you, you're standing in this massive hole and you think, how did I get here? And then you look and the shovel's in your hand, right? Like, it's just like, oh, this one's my fault. <laughs> this one's on me, right? I made some poor choices. I spent more money than I had. Than I had. We'll just end it there, right? <laughs> oh, it, I, I, I told a lie. Oh, I, I wasn't honest, right? I 
overslept for work every day of my life, right? Whatever it might be. And, and we have this kind of, that's like one branch of just stupid suffering. It's like, we know it, we have to own it. And we could talk about that, but I don't want to talk about that. That's, that's too low-hanging fruit. <laughs> but what about this idea of sacred suffering? Because not everybody will experience sacred suffering, but some of us will. Sacred suffering. And I would think of sacred suffering as this is the type of suffering that comes into the life of a person who chooses to, to say, you know what, I am going to walk the path of a peacemaker. I'm going to live what we like to call a cruciform life. And in the spirit of kind of faith in Christianity, a cruciform life is a life that dies to self that says, I'm going to be buried. This, that there's a part of me that's going to die. I'm going to die to my own wishes and wills and desires that are not grounded in a life hidden in God. And so I'm going to die to my values and the values really of the world. Now, when I say the world, just hear me out. I don't think the world is intrinsically bad. <laughs> I think that there are value systems, though, that come out as opposed to the values of God. And there is this constant battle, we could use that language, going on. So it's the, it's the difference between being a generous person and being a greedy person, right? Of saying, I'm going to take everything that comes into my life and see it as mine and what I'm supposed to do with it for me, for my good, for my blessing, for my enjoyment, or the value that says, I'm going to see everything that flows into my life as a gift from God, the universe, whatever word you like to use. And I'm to use those things to care for myself and to care for this world and to enjoy life and to help others enjoy life. So there's a value differential there. And when a person kind of surrenders to a life, we'll say in God or in Jesus, uh, some traditions would say you, you get baptized. Some traditions would say you invited Jesus into your heart. Some, some traditions would say you said the sinner's prayer. All these ways are talking about the same thing. I tend to think of it as surrendering to the truth about you that always was and always will be. That we are created in the image of God, that we are loved by God, that we are whole, that we are all God's children. And when I choose to have the faith to actually believe that nonsense then I, I can live at a whole nother level. And so when we choose to live into that, when we, when we make the conscious choice to accept by faith, yes, I'm, and so I, now I'm going to live this life modeled after Jesus, a cruciform life, a life of death and resurrection, not just one time, but over and over and over again. This is a cruciform life, and it's the way of peace. It's the way that brings wholeness into the world. It's how we talk about a life of faith around here at Crossroads these days. It's a life of peacemaking, of building wholeness in the world. But here's what we know. If we look at the life of Jesus, we know that peacemaking is really hazardous to your health. <laughs> that, that if you want to live a life free of sacred suffering, the best thing you could do is just pack up and walk out. It, it really is true because there is, a, there is a reality to Jesus and suffering that flows together. And, and we have this, all, these, all these statements of Jesus that were gathered and collected around this idea. And then the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these communities, they held on to these statements about suffering. And they, they talked about them. It's very fascinating that all four of the gospels give us renditions of Jesus's words on suffering. And part of that is because these gospels are being written at a time where people are going through intense suffering. And so in the Gospel of Mark, probably our earliest of the four canonical Gospels, Jesus is teaching on suffering is going to happen. You're going to be turned over to the courts. You're going to be persecuted. 
And he kind of finishes this statement Jesus does in Mark's gospel, Mark 13, 13, that you will be hated by all because of me. Hated by all because of me. Now, Jesus was saying this in, in the gospel to a group of people who were going to experience persecution, that, that they were experiencing persecution. And we then understand that, that if you're going to live out the values of Jesus that are always, always going to be in, in distinction and contrary to the powers of this world that would say, we're going to have peace through violence, right? The, 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 the values of this world that say, just keep getting more and more and more and more and more. Like when you start to step out against that, right? Even the values of, I would say, religious power that would say, this is the way to worship God. This is what it means. This is what the Bible says. And I am so certain of it. Like when you start to step into mystery, like our opening song said, when you start to step into a God that's bigger than this idea that maybe, maybe I wasn't the only person born on the planet who just happens to believe the right way about God. I mean, that's awfully convenient, <laughs> that I just happen to be born and I'm the people that God cares about. When I step into that, there's always going to be pushback from power. And that's what Jesus was facing. John chapter 15, uh, Jesus says it this way. If the world hates you, realize it hated me first. <laughs> it's like, I got you on that one. You got to realize it. And, and if you belonged to the world, the world would love its own. But because you don't belong to the world and I've chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. Right? Now, did the whole world hate Jesus? No. Did all people? No, absolutely not. In fact, the, the, those that found themselves kind of outside the normative power, those that found themselves being oppressed by the powers of the day, they loved Jesus. Jesus was their guy. And it, the same holds true and continually, like throughout the ages, it just always holds true. In Matthew, Jesus, again, it's the same kind of teaching that Jesus would have made, shaped for Matthew's community. And Jesus says, listen, here's the deal. Uh, the disciple will never be greater than the teacher. The slave will never be greater than the master. He goes on, he says, it's enough for the disciple to just be like the teacher. That's the goal. The slave to become like the master. And, but he says this, if they called the master Beelzebul, how much more those of his household so Jesus says, listen, if they said, I was the devil, <laughs> what do you think they're going to say about you? Now, we hear the word they. I want, I want you to run that through the context of some other beautiful passages we have in Scripture that say we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Our, our enemy isn't people. Our enemies are principalities. They're, they're ways of thinking, structural things. They're values. And say, wait a second. Like, if you're going to say that about God, then that's not of God because this is what the Bible says, or this is how I grew up, or this is what I'm... So all of a sudden, we have to recognize what Jesus is giving to us is this truth that suffering is a part of the deal, and it's going to happen. And it's so important that the gospel writers themselves, all of them took these statements of Jesus and formed and fashioned them so that their communities would understand you should be ready for it. And there's this amazing story when you start to feel like you're just overwhelmed by this idea of I have to live these values of generosity and love and inclusion and mystery. I have to live these values of peace. I have to live these values that God is at work in the entire, I have to live these values and all of a sudden it can feel overwhelming because you start to feel a sense of rejection. You feel a sense of, of, of being an outsider. There's this beautiful story that can help us figure out how do we navigate those moments. It's a story of Stephen. And the story of Stephen still continues to this day, thousands of years later, to encourage those that would experience sacred suffering, suffering that is based upon living a life 
according to the values of Jesus. We find this story in a book in the New Testament called Acts. It's actually part of the Gospel of Luke. These two were to go together, and then for some strange reason, we thought it would be great to separate them with John. I'm not really sure why in our Bibles we did that. It doesn't make any sense. And then we get so scared, we won't even change the order of books in the Bible. Do you realize how messed up that is? <laughs> like, it's funny to me. Like Somehow the ordering of books is now sacred and holy. Like, Why can't we go Matthew, Mark, John? Luke, Acts. That seems to make sense to me, right? Or go Mark, since it was the first one, right? Mark. Now that we know that. I, but no, we won't ever do that. It's too frightening. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said any of that, Katie. I apologize. <laughs> Whoever's handling the communication cards, connect cards, my bad. Going to be some comments on there today. <laughs> So listen, in Acts, we find this story. In Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8, we hear about this guy, Stephen. And what was happening was there was this dispute that was taking place among people who were following Jesus. They were all Jews. At this point in time, you've got to remember, there wasn't two religions. There was just Judaism. And within Judaism, there were like Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and Christians. So there were a group of people that were beginning to follow the teachings of Jesus within Judaism. And there were, now, then within that group, there were Greek speakers and there were Hebrew speakers. And the Greek speaking ones were saying, hey, wait a second, uh, our widows aren't being taken care of. Like they're forgetting that in the daily distribution of food. So they would, these communities would care for one another. And the apostles got together and said, hey, this isn't right. We need to fix this. It's not good for us. So let's find seven people, magic number seven. <laughs> okay. Probably was more <laughs> than seven, but that's a, a good whole biblical number, right? So let's get seven people. Choose seven who have shown themselves responsible, who are of good character, quality people. Let's choose seven people. Let them administrate this work, this ministry. Let them be in charge. And one of those seven was Stephen. And the whole point that we're given this story is so that we can meet Stephen. So Stephen comes in and we're told that Stephen is full of wisdom that Stephen has like power, like he is going and, and there's miraculous things happening around him. And what happens is there's a group of people in one of the synagogues that they didn't like Stephen because Stephen was, was pretty hardcore around his values and his beliefs and they were kind of contrary to the structure. Stephen had some pretty harsh things to say about the temple, right? The temple was the central space of worship. Now remember, he's speaking from within the tradition. He's not outside the tradition, but he sees the temple as a huge problem, like almost an act of idolatry. It's kind of strange when you really read it carefully. And so they would get into these arguments and finally they had had enough. And this group kind of, they brought Stephen in to kind of put him on trial. And so they, they bring some people to bear witness to things that Stephen was saying. Uh, and and they, were, they were probably accurate because he really was saying some things that were quite controversial probably. And, and, they, and so Stephen, what does he do? As they accuse Stephen, I love it, Stephen starts to tell a story. He says, listen, hold on a second. Let's just look at the history of us, right? Let's look at the history of what we've done. Let's look at the history of what you've done. And he starts with Abraham, and he says, this is where the promise began. It began with Abraham, and then he kind of works through all these major characters that we have in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And he works through them all, and he says, look, right here is where you, re you rejected God. Right here. Right here is where we rejected God. Right here is where we rejected God. Right here, right here. And then in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, he kind of culminates his speech with this. And, and it's a pretty hard statement that he says. He says, you stiff-necked people. Like, this is like chapter 3 of, of how to make friends. <laughs> he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Launch that at your next job interview. <laughs> uncircumcised. He says, listen, 
you always oppose the Holy Spirit, always. And because he had just given this long history, thousands of years, you always oppose what the Spirit of God is doing. You're just like your ancestors. And then he says this, which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? He had like gone through the whole story. He's like, which one? They put to death those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. In Stephen's mind, that was Jesus. Like they were prophesying about Jesus. They put them to death. Right? This is what we do. This is what you do. And you've become a betrayer just like them, a murderer just like them. Like this is what happens. And then he makes this really interesting statement. He says, you received the law as transmitted by angels. Like this law that God has given about love and community and justice and mercy and, 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 and what a society should look like, but you don't observe it. And, and, and that's a really powerful statement. Because these were probably some of the most observant people when it came to Jewish law. But what he was saying was that the law that had been handed down by angels was a law that spoke about justice, divine justice for the world, a law that spoke about inclusion, a law that spoke about how we were to represent fairness and equality and equity. And that's the prophetic voice that was constantly being opposed. Because see, the prophetic voice was always an indictment against injustice and oppression. That's why the prophets could say in the voice of God, your feasts and your festivals and your worship services and your podcasts and your books that you write, I don't, they're useless to me. What do I want? I want justice to roll like a mighty river. And that's, and, and that's the justice, the distribution of God's world, fairly and equitably. I want, I want everyone to flourish. And you're supposed to model that and you're not, you're taking advantage of it. And this was the indictment. And so when they heard this, the writer of Acts, Luke, he says this, they were infuriated. They ground their teeth at him. How many of y'all have kids and can relate? <laughs> that was me last night. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I was like, I'm done with, I just need to go to bed. Everybody needs to go to bed. <laughs> I'm going to grind my teeth or just to go to bed, right? They ground their teeth at him. But look, this is where it gets really good. But Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked up intently to heaven. He prayed. He saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, I, I, I don't know what Stephen saw. This is what's depicted here. We don't really know what Stephen saw there. We're given this picture of what he must have seen. Like, in some way, he experienced God, and it, and it gave him so much courage in this moment. He cries out, according to the story, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is what he's thought to have said. It says, and, but they cried out in a loud voice and they covered their ears and they rushed upon him and they came at him together and they threw him outside of the city and they began to stone him. Isn't that what they did to Jesus? Whoever they is, right? Took him outside the city, killed him, pulled him out. And that said, the witnesses, they laid down their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell to his knees and he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now, can I just say something to you? And I, this is, this is a, one of the most powerful stories we have. A powerful story. And there are faithful, wonderful Christians that believe it happened just like this. And there are faithful, wonderful Christians that say, no way, didn't happen this way. But here's what I'm telling you. The story is true. <laughs> and if we get caught up in arguing about it, we're missing the point. Because the point of the story is to teach us a few things about what does it mean for me right now 
to live out when I face my stonings, when I face my persecution by whomever it might be because of the values that I hold that are in alignment with Jesus. That's the point of the story. That's why these stories were written down to help shape us so that we might in our time apply them. And so here's some things that I think we can glean from the story to make sure that it's real, <laughs> to make sure that it's true. And that is that in the deepest, darkest persecutions that we experience, we can trust Jesus with our lives. We can trust Jesus with our lives. Because Stephen trusted Jesus even in death. In that moment where everything is ending, everything is over, I think it's a beautiful story that we see Stephen looking up in the heavens opening and he sees God and he sees presence. And the point of that story is to say in the midst of your suffering, if you will lift up your eyes beyond your suffering, you'll know that God is in control and that we can do that. We can trust God. And once you experience that level of trust, once you experience that God is in control, that God has appointed Jesus who raised this Jesus from the dead, to model for us a life of love and grace and power and victory. And in that grace and power and victory was death. Not even death can end it. Not even death can hold us back. So much so that Stephen was able to trust Jesus with forgiveness. And he was able to say the only way that transformation will take place is to offer forgiveness to the ones who are persecuting me. And see, that makes this story powerful. <laughs> That if we'll look up, if we'll lift our eyes above our suffering, that God will be present. And it's in those moments where we recognize that God is in control, has nothing to do with our suffering, but he's present in the suffering. We can offer what will transform the world forgiveness. That's the cruciform life. That's what G I believe that's what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me does not mean don't listen to secular music, does not mean don't listen, don't ever go to the movies, whatever you do, don't drink alcohol, whatever you do. Like, there's all these things that you do in your life or you don't do in your life that are just a matter of wisdom for you and for me. To take up your cross is to receive the pain of this world, to receive the sin of this world, to receive all of the, the stonings in this world, and to return it as love and forgiveness. Now see, that's... <laughs> That's a cruciform life. That's tough stuff. That's tough stuff. Story goes on and says that on that day, because of this, there broke out a severe persecution of the church in Jerusalem. This was a catalyst. Because what Stephen was representing, the things that he was saying about the temple being itself an act of idolatry against God, that God never wanted a temple. God was bigger than the, this whole world. How could God be contained in a, a building? So he, he makes these pretty outrageous statements against the power structures that were in existence. So great persecution breaks out. All the believers, they kind of scatter except for the apostles. And it says that devout men, they buried Stephen. They made a loud lament over him. This was not a time of rejoicing. We ought to remember this is still deep suffering. The story does not negate the suffering. The story does not negate the pain. Stephen had a family. Stephen had a mother. Stephen had a father. Stephen had brothers and sisters. Stephen might have had a wife. Stephen might have had children. There's pain still that is present. There's a great lament that happens over this powerful figure. It says Saul, though, meanwhile, was trying to destroy the church. Remember, they threw their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. And he was out trying to destroy the church, entering house after house and dragging out men and women. And he handed them over for imprisonment. Now, if you're familiar with this big story, Saul becomes Paul. And Saul becomes one of the, one of the really the most 
important, crucial figures in the history of what would become known as Christianity. Most of what we have as the New Testament is either written by Paul or written in Paul's name because it had so much authority. And here's what I want us to catch about this story of Stephen and suffering and, and Saul, is that Stephen's suffering wasn't just about Stephen. It wasn't just about his story. His suffering didn't end there. Like his suffering was a part of Saul's story. And I can't imagine how that wasn't a transformative part of his story because it seems to me that moment spurred him in one direction of deep persecution of people who he felt were challenging what was propping him up. I have this firm belief that Saul, like we'll never really fully understand what Saul gave up when he had his experience with the risen Jesus. I mean, Saul was headed towards leadership in the nation of Israel, probably beyond what we could imagine. I just think he was on that track. And he gives all of that up. And that moment when he sees Stephen being stoned, it spurs him into the normalcy of the world, of violence, of peace through power and oppression. Let's just get rid of what is making me uncomfortable. Let's get rid of the other. But then he has this encounter with Jesus, and that story had to shape it. And I often wonder, how often did Paul go back to that moment? How formative was his participation in the stoning of Stephen, in his understanding of what it meant to become like Jesus? Like, what did it mean for him to look back and think, I, I was there, and I did nothing? Like, how does that shape him in his whole way of seeing a life hidden in Christ? One of, the, one of his major phrases that he says over and over and over again. And so Saul goes and he plants these little communities that have this completely outrageous, upside-down message, this radical message for life under the oppression of Rome, this life that looks different than everything around you, that when you're in Christ, when you're part of Christ, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, that these lines, we don't, they don't exist in Christ. And he writes this one letter while he's in prison to a, a church that he helped plant. The letter's called Philippians, a letter to the Philippians. And I think of Paul sitting there either dictating this letter or writing this letter. And I think that as he's writing this, there's a moment in this writing where that memory must have come up. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, he says, but whatever gains I had, he had given a list of like all his accomplishments. He says, whatever gains I had, these I've come to consider loss because of Christ. Like because of how I've experienced Jesus, because of what Christ has done in my life, because of now as my eyes have been opened, I consider all that stuff loss. And more than that, I even consider everything as a loss, every part of my life compared to the supreme good of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Is that not an indictment on me and you? Is everything that we have pale in comparison to the joy of knowing Jesus. That is, a, that is a challenging phrase. And he says, it's all, everything, not just the stuff in my career, not just the religious stuff I had before Jesus, but everything now. And he says, for Jesus' sake, for Christ's sake, for the gospel's sake, I have accepted the loss of all things, and I consider them so much rubbish that I might gain Christ, that I might be empowered by Christ and be found in him and this is where I think he has to be imagining 
ripping men and women from their homes, throwing them in prison, watching them be persecuted, standing there watching Stephen be stoned. And he says, I have no righteousness of my own based on the law because the law put me in a place of power and oppression and violence. And I have no righteousness on any of that basis, only that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, depending on faith to know him and the power of his resurrection, the sharing of his sufferings. And I think that when Paul writes the sharing of his sufferings, he has to think about Stephen. That's what it looks like to share in the sufferings. By being conformed to his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so when we start to feel a little overwhelmed by the sacred suffering, we start to feel a little overwhelmed by trying to make the decisions that promote peace and wholeness in our world. When we start to feel a little overwhelmed by living the inclusion values of Jesus, the nonviolence of Jesus, the simplicity of Jesus, I think the story of Stephen reminds us that guess what? <laughs> Sacred suffering will always be a part of the peacemaker's story. And it's important because as a part of the peacemaker's story, it brings you into identity with Jesus. In your everyday normal lives, it brings you into a space where you become like Christ. And so I want to encourage you in those moments where you feel that, to in your, just think about this, remember, remember that suffering, suffering for this vision of Jesus is powerful. It transforms us. It's something that, that takes us and brings us closer to God. But there is a difference between suffering for the vision of Jesus and suffering for the laws of religion. There's a huge difference. And I hope that we as a local community will always remember that. That religion says you have to go to church on Sunday. The religion says you have to be in one room like this. You have to be looking at somebody as handsome as me with legs that won't quit. Eyes up here. Eyes up here, please. Right? Religion tells us you have to give this much money. Religion tells us all these things. And so when a pandemic hits, oh, here he goes. And, and, and the best of our science tells us, let's keep our community safe. Let's not gather in large groups. You might be suffering because it's a value to you to gather in this space, but you're not suffering for Jesus. <laughs> that's just, I'm sorry, it's just not suffering. It's suffering for the law of religion. That's suffering for something that's important to you. I, I'm down with that. I love this. I love that we're starting to return back. I love the energy that comes when we gather in a room like this. I think it's powerful. But let's not, let's, not, let's not equate that with the stoning of Stephen, <laughs> right? Let's not do that, because that puts us on this road of self-righteousness. That puts us in a, on a path that really leads us to a really dark space, I think, where we can't love people. It's, it's, it's really challenging. So remember, we do suffer for the vision of Jesus, but that's a vision of grace and forgiveness, and inclusion, and generosity, and yep, I want my tax dollars to go and help the poor. Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I want to give. Just, yes, I am not going to participate in that speech in my workplace that demeans that group of people. I won't do it. Not because Jesus tells me I can't, and if I do it, I go to hell, but because it mars the image of people that are different than me. I will not be afraid of the other. 
And we do face suffering for that whenever we live in those values and we get stuck in a situation that the values are opposed. So we should remember that. And when you start to feel the stones being thrown, probably metaphorically, <laughs> you got to forgive. This is what the story teaches us. You got to forgive. Oh, but Ryan, you don't know what they did to me. I don't really need to know. Did they stone you to death? Did they hang you on a cross? Have you surrendered to the truth of the power of God that lives inside of you? The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead that lives in you? Do you believe that? Then guess what? It doesn't matter what they've done to you because the only path forward is forgiveness. It's so hard though. No, I never said it was easy. But here's the thing, you know what's actually harder? A life of bitterness, a life of rage, a life of constantly wanting the worst for people. But we are transformed, we as individuals, people are transformed when we forgive and people are transformed in forgiveness. And then I want to encourage you to trust that God doesn't require suffering. <laughs> God doesn't say, oh, I've ordained this suffering for you and you and you, not you, you and you. You gave a lot in the offering, so you don't have to. You and you, and you read your Bible every day, so you don't get any suffering. You, on the other hand, <laughs> that's, that's not how this works, right? But trust that God can redeem it. And you've met these people, and they're super annoying. Then no matter what they're going through, they're just like, they'll say things like, God's got a plan. <laughs> and that's like, you're like, What? And I would vehemently argue that God's plan is for your suffering, right? That somehow God couldn't accomplish his plan unless you got cancer. No. That God couldn't accomplish his plan unless you lost your job because you wouldn't fit in with a culture that was constantly demeaning and demoralizing women. No. God has a plan. Yes, I absolutely believe that. But the ability to redeem the suffering in this world is the goodness of God. And so we trust that in the midst of it, that even the story of Stephen's suffering is redeemed and formed and shaped the life of Paul, such that we have such beautiful, beautiful passages about participating in the suffering of God. And as you suffer, I want to encourage you, don't suffer alone and don't let others suffer alone. There's no reason to do that. One of the reasons why it's important, I think, that we have these times during the songs where we pray is that we can be a visible sign to people that you don't have to suffer alone. That we have to have people in our lives that are willing to carry the burdens with us. They might not be able to do anything, but just be present. And there's so much power in that presence. So don't suffer alone. And don't let others suffer alone. You see somebody suffering, see somebody going through something difficult, just make yourself available. You don't, you don't have to fix the problem. We have this weird kind of Western mindset that, well, if I see somebody who has a problem, I, gotta, I only intervene when I can fix it. I'm going to tell you something right now. I've been in this business a long time. I can't fix any of you people. You're unfixable. Because you're not broken. Because you're not broken. It's just a, it's a part of life. But what I can do and what we can do is just to come alongside and be present. And we'll be surprised. We'll be surprised how often we can come and actually participate in restoration and redemption. Like... I love it that this story says that, that some devout men, they buried Stephen. It's all they could do, but they did it. 
So sometimes we just do what we can do. 1 Corinthians 12 says that when one part of the body suffers, all the parts suffer with it. Like this is the great image of the body of Christ globally, but it's also locally here. You know who the most important person is right now in the life of Crossroads Church? You're on the edge of your seat. You're like, who? The person who's suffering the most. It's not the pastor. It's not the person standing up here. Give me a break. It's the person who's going through the greatest amount of suffering. That's the most important person. That's because our whole body is suffering and we don't even know it. But the body has to come around and participate in the healing and the restoration. That's why it's important that we write our prayer requests down so that they can be made known. We do that. And what's powerful about this when we kind of embrace our suffering, it's not that we ask for it. It's not that we say, this is, this is God's will for my life that I go. No, but when we embrace it, we recognize that when I respond the way Stephen does, it will build intimacy with God, intimacy with the spirit of Jesus that is alive in this world, that we're invited to participate in. There's something about our suffering that brings us to a place of becoming conformed into the image of God. There's something about it that if we'll own it in the proper way, if we'll see it in a healthy, redemptive way. And I think that's what Paul was able to see, what was so powerful. I think Peter saw this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same attitude who embrace the suffering. And he says this, for whoever suffers in the flesh has broken with sin. It's a very interesting statement. You want to know what I think that means? I could be totally wrong. It wouldn't be the first time. But here's what I think. I think when you've actually had sacred suffering in your life, when you've suffered for doing what you believe is actually in the will of God for this world, all of a sudden you go, I just don't really care about your sin. <laughs> it's just not going to be a hindrance anymore. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When you've actually experienced that, you just you kind of rise above it. It's not that you're done sinning. So I've heard people teach that. Oh, well, once you've suffered, then you'll never sin again. Like, that has not been my story. <laughs> but what I found is like when I suffer for doing good or for what I think is right, and if I'm really in the right frame of mind, and I'm really suffering for what is good and not what is religion, I kind of all of a sudden my vision just comes to a different space. And I don't see people through the lens of sin and all that stuff. I just see people through the lens of love. I think that's, even in Stephen's indictment, he saw people through the lens of love, what he wanted for them, what he wanted for them. Second Corinthians chapter one, Paul says, for as Christ's sufferings overflow to us, it's just a wonderful gift that Jesus gave us. Also, encouragement overflows to us, that we are encouraged in, inter- in, in that intimacy. And as we grow in intimacy, we will learn the power of forgiveness. We'll learn the power of forgiveness. And there is nothing, I think, more powerful to heal us and to heal those that we've wounded and those that have wounded us than forgiveness. So as we wrap up today, we've got a song. It's kind of a tricky song, <laughs> because it could be seen as like really superficial or it could be a really a song of great depth in our lives. And as this song is being sung, you might want to sing it. In fact, I'm going to invite you to stand in just a second and sing along. Um, but what is God inviting you into today? On your talk notes, there's some things there to just consider that perhaps God is whispering into your heart today. But this song says, I'll give thanks. Scripture teaches to give thanks in all circumstances, 
For this is the will of God. Like the thanksgiving part's the will of God, not the suffering, not the difficult, the, the thanksgiving part. Why? Because it's in that moment when I'm able to thank God that God can redeem, that God can work, that God is present. I'm, my suffering can push me towards intimacy. And so this song says, so I'll give thanks to God. In the darkness, in the pain, in the hurt, I'll give thanks to God because God knows what I need. God's present. That God sings over me. And it's this great mystery. These are beautiful metaphors. So do me a favor and stand up this morning as we kind of take a breath. And you might want to close your eyes. You might know this song. We do it every now and then. This song always brings me great comfort. Um, the, the reality is it's been a tough couple of years for all of us. It's been a tough couple of years for me. And I was camping uh, a couple of weeks ago and I was sitting by this river and, uh, and I had some headphones on and Roman was there, our dog. And, um, and this song came on and I just literally just began to weep. Just began to weep. I thought, good night. What? nobody walks by. People think I'm getting ready to drown my dog or something, you know. But I was just weeping with encouragement and saying, in the midst of it all, I'll give thanks to God. And that, that these mountains that seem so insurmountable as I was standing, sitting in this valley and could see these huge mountains around, that God will move them. That God will move them. And I want that for you this morning as your pastor. I want you to have that in your heart, that depth of belief that even though what you might see are the mountains, that there's a God who, if we'll just, if we'll lift up our heads, this wonderful, beautiful story reminds us that even in death, even in death, we still have victory. So let's sing this together, and then I'll speak a blessing over us, and we'll go enjoy the rest of the day. Well, thank you, Ryan. Thank you for those stories and lessons today. And thank you, listeners, for being here. And before we go, I want to direct you to the song that Ryan is talking about at the end. And for legal reasons, we can't post it here for downloads. That song is I'll Give Thanks by House Fires. And it's one of my favorite songs right now. I promise you, you want to add this song to your life this week. So go get it. I'll Give Thanks by House Fires. And also, I want to quickly give you some next steps. If you are here listening, let us know. Go to crossroadscolorado.com gather to let us know who you are, how long you've been listening, and maybe where you're listening from. That is our digital connect card. And all the different ways we gather, we utilize that connect card. Let us know if you have prayer requests or any questions in the comments section and you may just want to say hello and say that you have been listening on the podcast we want to know who you are so uh go ahead and fill that out also remember that camps are coming up and if you're able to give your time talent or treasure it will help make camp wonderful and lastly we always give as part of our experience together whether we're in person or online or on the podcast and you can give online at crossroadscolorado.com slash give. We can text 77977, um, text Crossroads to 77977. 
or you might give on Venmo looking up Crossroads Colorado. You'll see our little orange dot of hope. So I hope you have a great week. Thank you for coming and being here. And we will see you next week on the podcast. Bye.